I did not ask for a glass of water up here, but I'm wondering if somebody could bring me one. I'm guessing I will need one, if not this morning, later on, right, right now, later on this morning. Open your Bibles. We're going to take some time and uh, just uh, uh, focus on the Word of God for a few moments, well, a little while at least, try to get you out of here in time that we can uh, bring the next ones uh, in this morning, which is normally not a constraint I have. Normally, it's just your lunchtime that's calling, and I don't particularly worry about that too much. Sorry about that. But um, this morning, I have to do a little better job. Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 120. This is a bit of an unusual thing, but I was thinking to myself, um, we have, I, I don't know if, you, if you've been keeping any kind of track at all in the midst of our break time and not being able to have our normal uh, services. Uh, we had about three messages left on the foundation series that I was going through. Uh, and I've been kind of wondering when to bring those back. I didn't want to bring them back when we were doing video messages, mostly because that's a lot of teaching. And I'm one of those people, maybe you're not like this, but I'm one of those people that thinks it's really hard to keep someone's attention uh, to teach. And I think to really do Bible teaching well, you're going to have to do more than, you know, 25 minutes or so. And so it's hard to keep someone's attention for uh, that long on a video screen. At least it is for me. I don't like watching someone for that long on a video screen. Hopefully it's a little better when you're in live, uh, live context. So I was thinking about coming back this week, and I thought, you know, I'm going to wait till we have uh, us all together again, and, and it's more normal again. So I'm looking for something to do, and I, uh, I, I've, my mind has been drawn to these things a couple of times. I think a long time ago, um, I, I'm guessing early on in my ministry, actually, uh, on a Wednesday night, we kind of walked through some of these psalms, and I thought, I'm going to come back to these psalms. I don't know if you've ever noticed in your Bible, I'm hoping for Psalms 120 through 134, I'm guessing you have a little footnote. It's not a footnote because it's the beginning, so whatever that's called, the opposite of a footnote, a headnote, that doesn't make sense, but whatever, a note at the beginning that says songs of ascent or psalms of ascent. I don't know if you ever noticed that. How many of your Bibles say that in your Bibles this morning? You say songs of ascent or something of that along those lines. These uh, songs were written, uh, actually not all by David. There's a couple that are noticed, uh, noted they're written by Solomon. They're written uh, and they're, uh, they're songs of ascent. What does that word mean? Let me just real quickly introduce the, uh, songs of ascent. It just, the word ascent really literally means elevation. But they're really, uh, it's this idea of a journey to, uh, to a higher place. And these were songs that traditionally, according to Jew Jewish tradition, were uh, given as sort of the, the call for people to make their three times a year travel to the city of Jerusalem for their festivals. So as they're on their way, you, you recall phrases like, let's go up to Jerusalem. Uh, and, and it is in some sense up, actually, like literally. But let's go up to Jerusalem. And it's this idea of, of going to where God is, this, this, this journey to a higher place. In fact, Jewish tradition says that not only would people have sometimes sung these songs as they were journeying to Jerusalem, but they would have even, if you think of the temple itself, uh, and if you know anything what the temple looks like, uh, you have all these steps that go up to the temple, right? So from the, before you get into the outer court, you have all these steps that go up, that people would have even the really, I don't want to, when I say this, it almost comes out like I'm saying it facetiously or slanderously, I don't mean it that way, but the people that were really, uh, really spiritual, really, really wanted to make uh, an honest effort at, at coming to God's presence and doing it right, uh, they would have even done that as they went up the steps, so like literally in elevation as they're going up, maybe going a few steps, pausing, 
reciting these, this song or singing this song and then going through. And there's a, a whole collection of them. There's 15 of them here from 120 to 134. We're not going to have time to dig into every one of them because we have about three weeks, Lord willing, until we're back together June 7th and having Sunday school in the morning at 930 and church service at 1030 all together. Uh, that's what we're sort of planning right now. If you've been getting the hotline or, or checked on our website, uh, that's what we're hoping to do. That may change because things seem to be changing all the time with our current atmosphere. But that's so we're not going to dig into every one of these. There's no way we can do that. And I'm not going to be able to get into all the nuances. But in general, you're going to see this, this uh, uh, sort of this progression that happens. If you were to look at the first early Psalms of these, 120, 121, 22, 23, they're really focused on sort of outward things, things that are happening outside of a person. And in fact, many of them are focused even on, on, on Israel as a nation, on what's happening outwardly around Israel as a nation. When you get more to the heart of them, the middle of them, they begin to turn inward a lot more. I suggest to you, by the way, that's a really good way to see our pattern as we come into God's presence, is that many of us, when we come into prayer time, we have all this stuff on our head about what's going on around us, the stuff we're worried about. Well, this is going on, or this is happening, I'm not happy about this, or I'm worried about this, or this isn't going right. And the, the, the closer you get into God's presence, if I can put it that way, the, the higher you go, if you want to use those words in, in keeping with the, the title of these, is you begin to realize that there's, there's a few things that actually take some precedence over what's happening out there, right? Because when I come into God's holy presence, I begin to realize I have a problem. If, I, if something isn't right in here, if Jesus isn't, isn't applied, if his blood isn't applied to here, then, then I, I have a problem. I can't come into God's presence. I begin to realize my need a lot more, and I begin to get a lot more focused that I have to take care of some things here. This is why, if you ever heard any teaching on prayer, that, that much, most of that, if it's good teaching, in my opinion, if it's good teaching, is going to have a focus pretty early on in reflecting, in confession, in saying, here's what I have that's, that's maybe not right, or maybe just a general statement of, I need you, God, as we're coming to him. And then if you would look towards the end of this, again, it's a realization. They turn a lot more to, uh, these, uh, the songs turn a lot more to uh, joy and praise and blessing the Lord and recognizing uh, what it's like that once I'm pure before God, what if a whole group of people would be pure before God and what that would look like? Uh, so anyway, we'll touch a couple of those themes, but this morning I'm going to quickly jump in and uh, look at Psalm 120 and just spend the next couple of weeks looking at some of these songs of ascent. Now, before I go, actually, let me say one more comment, because in one sense, another word, a phrase that I've even seen in Jewish context is these are called songs for the journey. Again, because they would have been singing them as they're on the journey. For us today, if we look at this, these are songs for our journey, our journey of life, our journey of heavenward bound, growing in the Lord, songs for our life. Psalm 120, we're going to jump right at the beginning. Hope you have a Bible open and follow along if you do. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, O you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long I have had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Well, stop there. It's a short psalm, fitting for what is supposed to be a bit of a more devotional message, uh, not quite the teaching I referred to earlier. But yet there's tons of stuff in here, and I, I hope we're willing to pay attention to the Word of God very closely. Psalm 120, he begins off these songs of ascent, this journey where he's, again, think about it in his mind. He's, in, he's visualizing himself coming from home where he's surrounded by everyday stuff, 
everyday people. In fact, people of all cultures in his context, the psalmist's context. And then he's making this journey. He's planning to go to uh, Jerusalem to the temple. But as he's reflecting, he's starting his journey, he begins with this cry. And I just want to focus on this verse, first of all, Psalm 120, verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Now, just stop for a moment and look at those words. Reread that phrase. I hope you do that with, with the Bible sometimes, by the way. I hope you look at, take time. You know, sometimes we're so focused on our checklists and getting our reading done and doing all this stuff that, that we just kind of like, like, we just read through it. And I'm, it's, sometimes it's okay to read what I call broadly. Like you're trying to, t- to tie the themes of Scripture together, and that's okay. But there's times, I think, where we need to stop for a little bit and just say, hold on. What did that specific phrase, what does that sentence say? And can I pause and let it, like, sink in. There's a whole lot of really good theology right here in this very first verse. I want you to know that. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Hidden behind that phrase is the idea that, A, sometimes I get places where there's a tight spot in my life, where I have problems, where there's distress, where there's something going on that I don't like. Any of you agreed with that, or any of you realized that in your life, that there's times when things aren't going like you wish they would? Yeah, you, you, it's just because we're back to church for the first time in a while. You can, you can be, we, can, we can have interaction. Yeah, those things happen, right? So behind that phrase is, first of all, the, the realization, the implication, the truth, that things are not always good in our lives, that things distress us, things cause us to, uh, to, to have, have problems in our lives. And then hidden behind that is the fact that there's one place we should go when that happens. I called to the Lord. I cried out to God. Think of the theology you're saying there. If I cry out to God when things are not going well, what does that by necessity mean unless I've just been trained like a Pavlov dog, which sometimes we are like that. But uh, uh, if I cry out to God when things aren't going well, what does that by necessity mean, I believe? I, I believe there is a God. What else does that mean, I believe? That he's able to help, right? That he can do something about it. Why else? I mean, think about your kids. When my kids get in a tight spot... They're not going to go call out, cry out to their younger sibling to help them out. They're going to come to mom or dad and say, I need help, dad. Can you help me with this? Just yes, yesterday, the last couple of days actually, kids wanted to go on bike rides, and they've been going on a bunch of bike rides, and they said the air was low on, on, on some of their tires. And I'm, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm a really busy guy, right? So, well, I'm pretty busy, but sometimes I get a little bit too much like us. But they want me to come blow the air up in their tires. And I, and I keep telling Marcus, I keep saying, you can go out. There's, you know where the pump's at. You know how to put the thing on. And you know how to pump it up, right? And, oh, well, we, we need help. And, well, we, and it went, this went on a couple of days, I'm, I've guessed, right? I'm guessing it was a couple of days that they kept coming back. So we can't go and ride our bikes because the, the tire's flat. And I keep saying, well, you have, you have siblings that, I mean, you have a brother or sister that can go put air in your tires. But why did they come to me? Why did they come to me to say, hey, we need help? Because they assumed that I could do something about it, right? And now hopefully, there's a bit of more theology, hopefully they also believe that that's what I want to do, right? That I want to help them. That I'm not going to just say, ah, get out of my face. I don't care. I don't care if you can't ride your bike. Which maybe it felt like that to them because I kept saying, hey, you guys know how to do this. Go. I, wasn't, I should have asked before I tell stories about my kids, and I didn't do this, but uh, I'm assuming it's, hey, Mark's like, oh, it doesn't matter. By the way, who put air in the tires yesterday? Yeah, he did. Because when it came right down to it, he went and tried it, and he, and he figured out he could do it. 
That's not the point of, of, of what I'm saying here. But the theology behind what's happening here is that when I get in trouble, God is the one who can help. God is the one who wants to help. He's the one I cry out to. And look at the last part, because I think that's, that's sort of the clincher behind it. It's a three-step sort of process of saying, here's where I'm at. I have a problem. I'm in distress. I called out to the Lord. And by the way, he answered me. Now, again, I... I I, I don't know how else to do this other than just like stop us for a little bit and say, stop, stop, stop. Don't think about anything else except for, uh, for a moment, except for the fact that the God of the universe, the, the one who spoke things into existence, the one who is sovereign over everything, the one who, for whom there was no beginning and there will be no end, the one whom will be triumphant in the end and will be declared king of everything and there will be no doubt in everyone's mind, that God says, yeah, I'll, I'll listen. I'll answer your, your cry. I'll, when you call out to me in distress, I'll answer you. I don't know about you, but that, that, that's amazing. That's, that's unbelievable, right? Why would, it's like, well, earlier in Psalm, I think it's Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist says, God, who are we, who is man that you are mindful of us, that you care about us, the son of man that you even care about? Why would you, how many people live on the earth right now? I don't even know the answer to the question. Billion, seven, some billion, Right? How many people have ever lived on earth? Now, that question I really don't know the answer to. It's a big number, right? You are one person among those billions of people, trillions of people. I don't know how big the number is going to get by now. And yet, with confidence, the psalmist says, and we can say today, when I'm in distress, when I'm in a tight spot, that's what the word distress means, by the way, tight spot. When I'm in a tight spot, I call out to God, and he answers me. But I love the next line even more because it reminds me of a lot of where we're living in today. Look at the very next line. Verse 2, he says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Can I tell you, I think you hopefully know this, but can I tell you, not only is this sort of like the first time in, that I'm aware of that we have this truly global pandemic, like, worldwide stuff is going on all across that's affecting everyone and, and everyone's being, everyone's being uh, I mean, is responding in similar ways. Like, we're, like, like that's, that's for the first time. I also think truly, this may not be true, but it seems to me that there is more lying lips and deceitful tongues. There is more untruth out there than I've ever been exposed to. Just from every single angle. Like, listen, I don't, I mean, one thing that's been amazing to me and, and quite frankly a bit disturbing to me through this whole thing is how, uh, how quickly even we as church people are willing to get really divided and upset about it with each other about how we, what we think about like where we're at on this whole issue of whether this is the worst thing in the world, whether this is a big hoax, whether it's this or that or everything in between. So I don't, I'm not referring to this morning. I don't, I'm not coming from a specific bent. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm on this side and so everybody else is lying. I'm saying I think we need to be honest and realize there's deceitfulness on every side. Every side is saying things, is putting stuff out there. I mean, it's just, I mean we're inundated with stuff. And it doesn't help because we're all, we all want to know what's going on. So we're all looking. We're all, we're all like, oh, God. And as soon as we find something that starts agreeing with us, we sort of go off in this trail. And I mean, this is human nature, right? But I want us to know, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. There may not be any more applicable prayer request you could give to God than that prayer request right now. 
God, be truth to me. Lead me in truth. Guide me and let me know that if something I'm hearing or seeing or being told is not the truth, that I might be protected from that. By the way, there's a little reference here. This kind of gives an interesting, it gives an interesting sort of like coupling in. I don't know if, have you ever, have you ever, uh, it's a little side, I mean, a little, little jump out, out of context here. Have you ever, like in the New Testament, you read verses about, you know, hell and who's going to be in hell. And you notice like those, those big, like those lists of like those nasty sins, things that, you know, really bad. You know, you read through those. You ever wonder, have you ever caught your attention that you're reading through them, it's, you know, people that are murderers and, you know, uh, people that are, you know, adulterers and people that do all this heinous, nasty stuff. And it almost always seems like somewhere in that list is the liars. Do you ever notice that? And do you ever think, well, that, that. you know why we think that? It's because it's a little too close to home, right? Like we somehow think that's a smaller one that doesn't matter quite as much as the, these big ones over here. Like I'm not doing that stuff. By the way, it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Not to bear false witness. So I think it's why it's in there. There's an interesting little sort of bolt-on with that here. If you look at verse 3, I didn't put it up in here, but uh, verse 3 and 4, it says, what's going to be given to those people that are lying, those tongues that are lying, those tongues that are deceitful? A warrior's sharp arrows, which is almost universally uh, in, in the Old Testament prophetic literature, is almost universally a symbol of God's judgment. And then this interesting, the glowing coals of the broom tree. I think some translations may call it the juniper, if I'm not mistaken. But it's very interesting. Broom tree only appears one other time. It's uh, where Elijah lays his head as he's fleeing from uh, Jezebel, and the angel comes and wakes him up and ministers to him, and he falls asleep again. Anyway, uh, but as I read a little bit about this, and I didn't look a lot into it. This, this is not a major part of my sermon, so I don't want to spend more than a couple, you know, 30 seconds on this. But it was very interesting. It talks about that the broom tree, this kind of tree, when you burn it, it doesn't, like, burst into flames and, like, burn up. It just glows and I read one place that said that sometimes you can even have, like, like chunks that will, that will burn, like, they'll be hot, they'll burn for 24 hours. And I thought, that's very interesting, because in some sense, you're getting an Old Testament psalmist reference to hell, right? Because that's exactly the same language, I didn't, look up the, I didn't look up the verse, but it's exactly the same language that's in Revelation, where it talks about the lake of fire and the eternal torment and the place where all liars will be. So, interesting little side note there. Let me come to this last part here because as we, as we continue to, to recognize, there's another application I think that, for, that comes for us today. If we come down to verse 5, he says, woe to me. He's recognizing that on his journey, his path, his way to the Lord, he says, woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach and I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now, I'm guessing if you're like me, many times you read stuff like that and you kind of know that, well, that's probably a reference to something somewhere. It means something to somebody. If you're Jewish, it probably really means something to you. But for us, we just kind of move on and say, ah, that's, God is trying to say something. So I took a little time to actually look into what these, uh, what these uh, names, these people are. Now, Meshach, does anybody know who Meshach is? Just going to give you a little chance, a little quiz time before we, I reveal to you. I mean, I'm not expecting anyone to know, but maybe someone here is a lot smarter than I was when I started studying this this week. I mean, who Meshach is? Meshach is the grandson of Noah. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, actually verse 1 says these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Japheth, verse 2, the sons of Japheth are Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. Now you may recognize a few of those other names in there, but Meshach is the name of 
the grandson of Noah. The son of Noah was Japheth. The grandson was Meshach. How about Kedar? Anybody know who Kedar is? Make sure I get the right reference here. Kedar is the son of Ishmael. So if you look in Genesis chapter 25, if you want, I didn't do a handout, so if you're jotting down notes, Genesis chapter 25, verse 13, well, 12 says, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. Verse 13, these are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth. Nebaioth, the first of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetar, Nefesh, Kedema, you don't know all those. But Kedar, both of these guys, now they represent something, right? One is from Japheth. Now think about this very carefully. Noah and his sons went in the ark and were saved in a dramatic fashion. They were the only ones saved, by the way, in the whole earth. And Meshach is the son of Japheth. So they came off the ark and Japheth, they had children, and Meshach is his son. And Kedar is the son of, uh, as what Abraham would say, the son of, of, the, of the curse, right? Of Ishmael, uh, who, was the son, um, who was the son of Abraham and Hagar. Now, I want to point out to you, there's a couple other places we read about these guys. Let me do just a real quick, um, if you open your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel really quick, if you could. Ezekiel chapter 27 is where I want to take you to. Now, we're not going to read a whole lot of this, but I want to give you just a brief, I have to give you a little background to, to make this make sense. Because both these guys show up in the prophetic literature, both Meshach and Kedar. There's a reason why the psalmist says, woe to me that I'm dwelling in the land of Meshach and among the tents of Kedar. If you look at Ezekiel, in Ezekiel verse, uh, chapter 27, 28, and 29, you have this progression that happens. In 27... He gives what he calls a lament for Tyre, T-Y-R-E. Not tires in your car, Tyre, T-Y-R-E. It's a place. And, it, it, and it's really a lament, but it's really, it's, it's talking about or warning of God's judgment. And, and Tyre stands for a place. And it represents a place. And we're going to find out what that place is. He gives, in 27, he gives uh, the description of what Tyre, who they were and what they were doing. And some of the evil things they were doing with those things. If you go to chapter 28, you get, it says a lament or a prophecy against the prince of Tyre. And that's the earthly ruler of that nation. Again, a representation. And it's the earthly ruler because it says in verse, uh, verse 1 and 2 there of, of chapter 28 that because your heart is proud, you've said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, yet you're but a man and not a God. That, that's how you know you're talking about a real person, right? You're talking about the king or I mean, the, the leader, the, the, the earthly leader of this, what we're going to find out is a, a way of life, a system, a group of people. Not a specific people, although it's a specific reference, but a group of people. If you would keep going over then, later in, in uh, chapter 28, sorry, I said uh, 28, 29. It's actually later in chapter 28. It says, a lament or a prophecy against the king of Tyre. First was the prince, now it's the king. Now in this, this is now, if I can tell you, this is a reference to Satan. I touched on this a uh, number of weeks ago, a long time ago by now, when we did the foundation series, and I talked about But here you begin to read that the king of Tyre, and he uses words like, you were in Eden. You were in the garden of God. You were uh, created, uh, you were prepared, you, you were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you in the holy, in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways. This is a reference to Satan. What I'm trying to get you to see is that what we get in chapter 27, 28 of Ezekiel is Ezekiel is giving his judgment over Satan and those people on earth who follow him and everyone who, who, who operates under his uh, way of doing things. Okay, you got that in your head? Now look at Ezekiel chapter 27. I'm making a long point here about something here. Probably wouldn't have to take this long. Ezekiel 27, if I look in verse uh, 13... 
He's talking about the things that Tyre did, the nation, these people who are followers of Satan, followers doing Satan's bidding, doing, I mean, aligned with Satan, if you want to put it that way. He says in verse 13, Javan, Tubal, and Meshach traded with you. Now, these are the sons of, of Japheth. They traded with you, and it goes even further. Look what it says. They exchanged human beings and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. Now, get what it's saying. It's saying that there were people who made trades, including human beings and vessels of bronze, for the merchandise of this nation that is following Satan. What he's trying to get us to see is that there are people who are following what the Bible calls the prince of the power of the air or the power of this world. There are systems. There are, there are groups of people. There are, are nations as a whole sometimes, but there's certainly individuals, people who follow. The king is Satan. The earthly rulers, there's always somebody here on earth who's, 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 taking, who's, like, who's the leader, right, who's aligned with, and then those underneath them. And these people, this Meshach, these people of Meshach are interacting. They're trading. They're wanting what they have to offer. And so they're willing to trade vessels of bronze. They're also willing to trade other people. If I can remind you that human trafficking is one of the greatest scourges upon the earth today. People willing to trade other people for what they want. Now, by the way, if you would keep on reading in chapter 27, you go all the way over to verse 21, you find another interesting reference. Arabia... And all the princes of Kedar were, fa- were your favorite dealers in lambs, rams, and goats. All of this I want to say, long way around, to say the reference to Meshach and Kedar in Psalm 120 verse 5 is a reference to the fact that the psalmist says, I am living among people who are interested in one thing, and that is in getting the merchandise of Satan, in, in interacting with Satan and how he does things, in doing things the world's way, not God's way. I'm living among them. No surprise, by the way, that the primary reference we have so far is that they are liars and deceitful. For after all, Satan is the father of lies, right? He only speaks falsehood. He doesn't know how to speak the truth. See how all that ties together? I say all that to remind us, on our journey through life, ending in heaven someday, where we want to end up, we live, we dwell among Meshach and among the tents of Kedar. I would tell you that's today where we find ourselves in. People who have no interest in doing things God's way. They may not know it. They may not recognize it. They may not admit it. They may not be intentional about it. But they are doing business with those who have a leader who's closely aligned, who sets himself up as a God and is closely aligned to Satan who himself uncovered himself before God, which is why he was thrown out of heaven. Does that make sense, the reference I'm making to you? This is why he says, woe to me. This is why he says, I am for peace, but even when I speak, they're for war. They're always for war. They're always for division. They're always for hatred. They're always for for destruction. Again, it's because they're following the bidding of the one who is ultimately over them. We find ourselves living in the midst of that. And here we are on our journey, aren't we? It's why in verse 1, let me reach now into the next chapter. In verse 1, he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where is my help going to come from? Where am I going to find help? I'm living among these people. Their lips are lying. They have deceitful tongues. They're trading people. They're trading their merchandise for the things of Satan. Every time I speak peace, they only want war. They're going to come against me. They're going to oppose me. They're going to do everything they can to bring destruction because they're doing 
knowingly or unknowingly, they're doing the bidding of the one who is in charge of them, which is the enemy of our souls. Where does my help come from? Thankfully, in the very next verse, you know this verse. These are very well-known verses. He answers that question with a clear, simple answer that I can tell you this morning. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Friends, brothers and sisters, in the day of distress, when you're surrounded by all kinds of deceit, you're surrounded by all kinds of lying tongues, you're, surround, you're dwelling among Meshach and among the tents of Kedar, those that don't have anything but war in mind, anything but destruction in mind, your help will come from one place and one place alone, and that is the one who made heaven and earth. It is why I can tell you unequivocally, in your distress, you should call out to the Lord, for he will answer you. It is his delight and his pleasure to have those who depend on him, to call out to him and rest in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness, for your promise to us. Thank you for your care for us. The fact that the, the omnipotent, omniscient, holy, righteous, just, perfect, pure creator God would care about us. That's almost more than I can put words to. And I thank you. I, I praise you. The only fitting response can be to cry out to you, to surrender to you, to, to rest in you, to, to say you're my only hope. And you have really truly answered that in the name of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know in the coming conquest, the coming victory of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we thank you that when we are in distress, we can cry out to you. When we are pressed in on every side, when there's lies abounding around us, when we're not sure what the truth is, when we're not sure which way to go, when this seems good for here, but then I hear this, this seems good, and then, well, this, and then my heart begins to tremble, and I begin to have fear, and I begin to wonder what's really going to happen, and you keep reminding us, in your distress, cry out to me, for I will answer you. Lift your eyes up to the hills. Where does your help going to come from? God, it only can come from you. And we do lift our eyes up. When we see these things, as Jesus, in fact, encouraged us, he said, when you see and hear these things take place, lift up your eyes, for your salvation is nigh. Oh, we want to train and fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. You, Jesus, who have won the victory for us. You who will be the conquering King of kings and Lord of lords. You that when you will appear, that every knee will bow and tongue confess and everyone will know that you truly are the Son of God. Keep our eyes fixed, our hearts fixed, our mind fixed on that truth. For you have sent Jesus and you've given us the promise through your angels that as the disciples saw him rise up, so he also will come again to us. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.